Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Let's Talk About It. This is Susan Johnson, and my co-host is out running for office. Uh, Dennis O'Brien will be running for the Willamette Taxing District Board this time, and uh, so he won't be with us until after the election. But uh, uh, we have a wonderful guest for you this evening. We have uh, we have a wonderful guest who is in charge of the uh, Homeless No Free Shelter. And I just want to say thank you so much for being with us. I'm Mrs. Leonhardt. Hi. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And uh, we have great news. Uh, so you're in the process of uh, opening up uh, the shelter again on uh, November 1st. Yep. So we are getting ready to open our shelter for another shelter season. Um, and we're really looking forward to it. As you know, um, last year, a year and a half ago, we purchased a building and then the the Foster Family Foundation um, paid our mortgage for us, and and so we um, are so uh, just so incredibly grateful to them for for the support that they've shown us and and the help that we got with getting that building. And since that time, we actually bought the smaller building next door, and this is in um, this is so that we can. Um, have more of a campus and I'll talk more about the renovation project in a, a bit but first right now what we're doing is because of upcoming re uh, renovations we are moving our shelter um, services over to the smaller building at 459 Valley Street and um, so that they can start renovating the um, the main building at 433 Valley Street. So we just I just came from there. We were um, setting up beds thanks to um, ARPA grant funding from the town of Mansfield. We were able to buy all new beds, and we're having some construction work done in there just to make it all um, safe, um, uh, up to code and up to um, fire marshal standards and things like that. We're we're very excited. We've had a lot of support from the town. On this project and um, it's going to be a good season. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much for your hard work on this. I know that uh, it's been a wonderful thing that you've been doing and you're really in touch with uh, people who need to make those transfers from homelessness into, into housing and uh, it's uh, having you here so that you really understand the systems and the process is really valuable to all of us, me as a state legislator, but also to people who are working on these issues. And I just want to say thank you for that work and uh, helping out people who have a lot of needs. Maybe what you could do is tell us a little bit about the, some of the profiles of the people who you're helping at this point in time with, with homelessness. So um, at our shelter, we serve adults only, and that's anyone age 18 or older. And we, um, we have a variety of people. Right now, we're seeing an uptick in the number of people who are over the age of 60. Um, and that's concerning because um, that tells us that we have people who are um, not getting the support that they need as they age and as maybe they leave the workforce or something like that. Rents are going up. Many people are on fixed incomes. And when rents go up, they can't afford to, to stay where they've been for many, many years, perhaps. And, and so that's, um, that's one, um, one part of the population that we're seeing. Uh, we're also seeing a number of um, young people. And so for us, youth, um, youth is anybody who's up to the age of 25, so between 18 and 24 years old. And um, we try to get them 
um, situated in a place where they can get support that's specific to their needs. Um, some, some employment help, maybe if they need uh, a GED or to go back to school or something like that, they can get that kind of support that is um, specific. So we work with other agencies um, that provide services specifically for them. And um, and yeah, profile, we have everybody, every story you could think of <laughs> and some that you never would imagine. Well, you know, so. that's, 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 that's excellent because I think that one of the things I've found is that a lot of people are very, very surprised that our uh, population that's growing older, our senior citizens, people over 60 and people who are, uh, you know, actually retirement age of 66 or so are actually finding themselves without housing, as well as the surprise has been, uh, and I learned this several years ago when I was working on the uh, Higher Education Committee with respect to college students. We have uh, students who have been, uh, who are going to college living in their cars, and they are also homeless. When we run into a situation like that, I, I usually will contact somebody that we know at UConn or at Eastern, depending on which school they're at. And, and we've been able to help them in that way. Um, the colleges are wonderfully supportive of the no freeze. Uh, they send us volunteers, student volunteers, and things like that. And we just, we really work, have a wonderful relationship with both the colleges and QVCC. And so, um, so they're wonderfully supportive of us. And we, if we have a college student, we can usually find a way to keep them out of shelter and and off the streets. So that's wonderful. That's, thing. that's really good to hear. I know it was quite a big surprise to people when I started working with uh, the chairman of the Higher Education Committee, Greg Haddad, Representative Haddad, had mentioned there were homeless uh, students at UConn and around the area. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought that that was a surprise. But also now the growing number of senior citizens who are homeless is also a surprise because I guess the housing shortage and the income shortage, uh, the low-income population uh, situation is kind of colliding, making this situation much, much worse than it's ever been, actually. My recollection, that is. That's true. And we're also seeing more people, more and more people who are experiencing homelessness who are actually working mm-hmm. um, and working full time, but just don't have enough money to make ends meet, can't afford uh, a rent in this economy. And especially if you're working at a minimum wage job, um, it's very, very difficult. So even some of my staff are working two jobs because mm-hmm. it's just hard. It's mm-hmm. very hard out there right now. I know we worked hard to, at the Capitol to raise the minimum wage to the, to the 15. We fought for the 15, but really the, the wage that you need is somewhere around 25 to $30 an hour. Exactly, exactly. If you're going to be able to afford a, an apartment, uh, mm-hmm. then you need to be able to make that kind, unless you're going to show that you can uh, get a subsidy, a Section 8 subsidy, which uh, there, there's very a big limitation on those as well. Right. And, you know, honestly, not everyone should need a Section 8 subsidy. Those should be for people who really genuinely need them. And, um, and so that should not be a goal unless you are somebody who, are, for whatever reason, can't work um, because of a disability or something like that. It seems like... Um, it, it just seems like we should be able to work at one job and be able to afford rent. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I hear what you're saying, but the Section 8 subsidy actually uh, uh, is a subsidy for the corporations that keep the wages low. 
Mm-hmm. So, I, so if you have a subsidy, whether it's through the Medicaid program or through Section 8, any type of government subsidy for people who work is subsidizing the corporation that's keeping the wages low. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that is uh, that's a real problem in terms of how we how we operate our economy. And of course, as we know, uh, and not to get too far sidetracked off, but uh, when you have a lot of monopolization of all the goods and services, then what happens is there's no competition, and it drives the price up. And we know what's going on with housing. The banks are buying up the housing. The hedge funds are buying up the housing and driving the cost up. Mm -hmm. So we have that right here in town where the hedge funds have been purchasing their mobile home park. Uh, They purchased the uh, 580 Main Street and the building next door. Uh, so the bigger bigger buildings are being purchased by hedge fund operators, and they're raising the rents beyond what even would be considered market rate. So mm-hmm. a person could get a Section 8 subsidy. Yes, right. And, yeah, I agree. And I hear also in the Danielson-Putnam area that there's this is happening quite a bit with um, a lot of the residential um, apartments where, where they're being um, purchased by somebody who flips them. Or, or just purchased outright. Um, you know, I know that landlords have suffered with COVID. Um, a lot of them uh, really struggled because they weren't necessarily getting rent from their tenants for a long time. And, and some of them are just ready to be done. And when a big corporation comes and dangles a, a lot of money in front of them and says, let me, let me take that property off your hands for you, it's very tempting. I can understand why they would say yes to that. Absolutely, and that is that's a problem. So you've got them uh, also in the uh, the quiet way up in the quiet corner, but you've got them all over Connecticut and mm-hmm. all over uh, the country, basically buying up uh, properties and driving up the cost of housing. Uh, and they know right now in Connecticut we're about one hundred twenty thousand units short of housing opportunities for people. Mm-hmm. One hundred twenty thousand units now. This didn't happen overnight. This has been going on for the last 40 years when uh, former President Reagan uh, actually got rid of the Department of Housing and Urban Development's building of housing and just created the Section 8 program, which is nothing wrong with the Section 8 program providing subsidies. On the other hand, uh, not providing any more new housing for uh, different groups is, is a big problem, and that's kind of what's happened over the last uh, 40 years or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So losing out on that housing is something that uh, that we're really uh, in, a, in a jam about, and that's why we're so pleased that you have the no-free shelter here, which has been a no-free shelter since Reagan, I think, was in, in the presidency and cutting back on everybody's uh, social safety net. Mm-hmm. We are 20 years old this year, so... Um it's been, yeah, and we're really growing now uh, in this mm-hmm. big way with the new buildings and, and um, the big renovation project. And um, it's we're excited about it because we're going to um, be, uh, it's a very different model, and um, we're really excited because the, the renovation project is being funded by COVID money. And because of that, um, instead of having a large room with all these beds crammed in there, we're ultimately going to have small rooms where people will be, uh, they will be double occupancy rooms with their own bathrooms. And um, that's, that's really nice because sometimes people come into shelter and they're already experiencing some kind of trauma from being homeless. And now 
And now they come into this big room with all of these strangers. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I would find it very difficult to sleep <laughs> in a situation like that. And so this gives people a sense of dignity, a sense of um, privacy. And, um, and, and it's, it's going to be really nice. I'm so excited about it. Plus, there will be space for things like doing laundry. And, and um, we'll be able to provide, still provide showers for people who are sleeping outside. Um, hygiene services and things like that, they'll be able to come in and still get services. So it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sounds wonderful. It sounds like uh, you've really worked very, very hard at this, trying to make sure that you have this nice expansion. And So tell us a little bit about the renovation and uh, how the project will work. Uh, you know, so you're kind of coordinating the buildings, fixing one and then the other. Right, right. <laughs> so, so we're going to go to bid soon for a general contractor on the um, project. And we have, um, like I said, there's the large building at 433 Valley Street, and there's a smaller building at 459 Valley Street. They're right next door to each other, and we'll just merge the parking lots. Um, in the end, what will happen is, as I described, the larger building will have um, these micro units with, um, with uh, bedrooms, smaller rooms for people to share, and some open space. It will also be fully ADA compliant, so we'll have an elevator, um, we'll have a sprinkler system, we'll, we'll, everything will be up to um, code standards now, and I'm, and I'm excited about that too. And then the smaller building will be our administrative offices, but we'll also have data services over there so there's going to be a resource room where people can come in and use a computer and have some help if they need it to um, apply for jobs or look for housing look for search for apartments or whatever they need to do online like it might be even you know getting their snap benefits fixed because something went wrong you know a lot of that stuff is done online now and a lot of people need a little guidance with that so we'll have volunteers there um, we also hope to offer some clinical services. We've talked with um, both Generations and um, Hartford HealthCare, who are willing to send us some support um, in the, you, you know, perhaps an APRN or a nurse or, or something, somebody who can come during the day and just help people with um, maybe diabetes checks or getting a COVID test or COVID um, vaccination or a flu shot. Um, or maybe they're just... Um, uh, they've lost their medication. They need help getting a refill. Maybe they have a hurt toe and they just need somebody to look at it. You know, that kind of thing helps people stay out of the emergency room for their primary care. So it's a huge um, cost-saving benefit um, if we have somebody right on site that can help people. So you're, you're raising an interesting issue for me uh, because one of the things I like to focus on at the Capitol is uh, health care access. And so many of the people who come to the shelter are probably eligible for the Medicaid program. Yes. And so that would be uh, something that you might help them apply for mm -hmm. or uh, something where, you know, if they're getting services at the homeless shelter, uh, they would be able to have the Medicaid program pay the service provider for the services. Right, right, yes. Um, yes, and we do help now with, with that kind of thing as people need it. Um, many of the people come to us already um, receiving Husky benefits, so they're, um, so, which is good. Uh, that's helpful. Uh -huh. And so one of the things when you look at the Husky program, I know that I was kind of surprised that we have something called the CHESS program. 
uh, which is a program that um, you know is supposed to help people if once they're housed with some of the housing needs that they uh, would need to stay in the housing, and that also is uh, paid for by the Medicaid program. But my understanding is it didn't quite go very far this year. <laughs> so the CHESS program has been actually wonderful. We had a number of our guests were, who were eligible who applied for CHESS and were able to receive it and are now housed. Um, so the CHESS program, yes, is a, is a two-part program. It provides first um, housing a housing subsidy, like a Section 8 um, voucher, so they can go into housing and then um, they also have wraparound services. So that means a case manager who's going to help them um, with their daily activities uh, to whatever they need. You know, whether it's, it might be arranging to have a visiting nurse to help them with medication, or it might be helping them um, get to their appointments, or it, it might be just somebody who can help them figure out how to get to the grocery store if they need to, you know? Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing is really, really helpful. Um, and so the CHESS program, unfortunately, um, not long after they opened, a lot of people applied, and they were able to get a lot of people um, a subsidy, but then they ran out of funding for the subsidy. So the, our, where we are now is that um, if we can help somebody with a Section 8 voucher or some kind of subsidy, they can still provide, uh, we can apply for them to still receive wraparound services from um, and support services from CHESS. And I heard that they may be opening up again, but I'm not sure for the, for the housing subsidy. I hope so. Um, right now, I, I haven't heard much, but I heard that they're trying to do it again because it's really a, a wonderfully successful program. And mostly because for somebody who's experiencing homelessness, attending to their, to their health care needs is, is a, a kind of a lost cause. You, if you're really sick and you're outside, you need to be inside. And so this is a way for people with chronic illnesses or, um, or some kind of um, disability to be stabilized so that they can attend to the health care needs that they have. You know, that's exactly right, and that is one of the things I know that when I was uh, working, going uh, with the Medicaid director to the Millbank Foundation meetings on health care, uh, Arizona actually, uh, strangely, <laughs> was the first uh, state to do a chess program, but they, uh, the focus generally is on uh, Medicaid beneficiaries who actually uh, cost the state more than $40,000 a year because their overall condition is so compromised right. and that they found that if you're housed, you're not going to be as ill. Exactly. And exactly. That, and that was a surprise to people. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> kind of really? Funny. <laughs> it is kind of funny. Yes, it's, it's absurd. Um, but anyway, I mean, that is that is the kind of absurdity we're faced with in the society today because of the lack of a good social safety net for people that have all kinds of uh, problems, uh, you know, and what probably landed them in the homeless situation in the first place was they had a heart attack. Uh, we've had people come to the Capitol who suffered heart attacks and then were discharged from the hospital to the riverbank instead of to, uh, to a nursing facility or trying to find a home for them, which has been quite a, quite a thing, and or discharged from the hospital to the homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something I raised again this year um, 
in the Appropriations Committee and in the Human Services Committee. And as you might remember, I also serve on the Medical uh, Policy Oversight Council. And uh, that, uh, that we were actually speaking with the Commissioner of uh, Human Services and uh, the Director of Medicaid and the person that helps uh, with these issues. And they had not really been fully informed about the fact that people were being discharged from the hospital to a homeless shelter or to a riverbank. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, and because sometimes people, you know, they work all their life at, at lives at, in, in places where, uh, you know, maybe they're not making that much money. They're, they're, you know, paying their rent every month and then boom, they get sick and they go to the hospital and they come back and they can't afford to pay the rent while they're in the hospital and they've been gone so long that they lose the place to live and then they're uh, homeless mm -hmm. and uh, not, you know, the discharge plan does not address uh, making sure someone is moved from the hospital uh, to a, a home. Uh, someplace, and they end up in the homeless shelter. So you want to tell us a little bit about some of those that you might have uh, had? Uh... We we have had that happen, and it it's always frustrating when it does happen, particularly if the person is physically compromised when they come to us. You know, they might have whatever, staples from a recent surgery or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's, um, for us, that's very difficult because we don't, we don't have the capacity to care for that person in the way that they need to be cared for. Um, I will say this, that, that we've got a wonderful relationship with the um, ED at Wyndham Hospital and, and also at Bacchus. And they do make every effort not to discharge to us they have done it. It's not, but they let us know. They call us and they say, this is the situation and we just can't find a workaround. And so, so I'm glad that they do that because, um, because it helps us try to, sometimes we can help brainstorm with them over the phone. Um, I certainly understand why it would be difficult for a hospital who has to discharge because it, they can't magically find an apartment for this person either. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But I, I do get concerned when they discharge um, somebody who is very, very um, compromised um, mm -hmm. and, and maybe isn't ready to be, you know, who would typically go home and go to bed for a few days, <laughs> yeah, isn't typically ready to be up and around and things like that. So um, it, it does happen. Um, we try very hard to work with um, our other providers and, and the hospitals. We are trying to pull together a community care team, too, with the, the hospital and Generations and us, because the three of us are right there, and try to um, be able to kind of um, anticipate these problems before they happen so that there's a solution. You know, I have to give you praise for finding that location for the shelter because it is located in the perfect spot between the hospital and generations. And it really gives people who have these medical needs uh, a chance to get the treatment, and it's not very far away. Mm -hmm. And so it gives you a chance to work with everybody in the, in the health care profession. And I think that that's a, that's a very good spot that you've been able to find, and it's going to be a help for people making these transitions with these, uh, many of them very serious health care uh, you know, needs that have to be fixed and uh, so I have to say thank you for that uh, uh, we're going to stop here for a minute for our break this is Susan Johnson and I'm here with Avery Linhart and uh, we want to uh, come right back after these messages
<laughs> so yeah, so we're still being videotaped for cable access TV. So we can continue to plan what we're going to say next, and uh, <laughs> okay. we can, and they'll hear it when we uh, when we go on the cable access. It also gets blasted on my website at the Capitol, and I'll send you a podcast as well. Okay. But I'm all in a quandary because I have I've been doing pre-records, so I'm getting my dates all <laughs> all mixed up. <laughs> and so, but anyway, uh, it's good because we have had a wonderful guest like you, and. Uh, very happy about that, but I do want to focus a little bit more on the social safety net and the problems and the healthcare aspects. Mm-hmm. I don't think people realize <laughs> that the people who are going in here are people who are on disability because they have a behavioral health or, or a physiological problem or both. Right. And uh, these are things that are really uh, very disconcerting. And I've been trying to work at the Capitol on the issue because uh, there has been, since Reagan was president, a limitation on uh, Medicaid reimbursement for mental health services. And also, there's no Medicaid coverage for um, long, long-term inpatient psychiatric care. And so that has really created a real problem for, uh, for people that have these long-term disabilities. And the state looks to get uh, you know, people covered for things they can get the 50% reimbursement on. Mm-hmm. So if it shifts to the state, then the state just needs to get the the reimbursement rate, and uh, that would be <laughs> that would be the kind of uh, thing that we're you know uh, taking a look at to see what we can do. And that's what I'm speaking about nationally. I'm going to uh, these conferences nationally about behavioral health services, and uh, some of it has to do with the insurance industry not taking the idea of a psychiatric uh, disability seriously, or thinking that you know it's not. There's still in the Freud era, era, era where people didn't quite take Freud seriously, right? And uh, that's where they are. They're like still in the 60s in terms of their coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we really need to move on because I think we understand a lot more about the brain today than we did. Uh, let's see, what's that? Since the 60s was 60 years ago. <laughs> I think a little bit of science and technology is uh, taken over, and it's time the insurance industry stepped up to what we know in science. So that's kind of like uh, what we need to try and move forward on nationally mm-hmm. and locally and statewide. But you see the cut from the national level goes to the state, and then the state drops it off to the local. Mm-hmm. And they put it in a community like ours, the poorest uh, community in the whole state. Mm-hmm. And then they expect us to take, carry the ball for everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not, should should be how it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not progressive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is a regressive way to operate. Mm-hmm. They need to provide the services and uh, the payments, say, for example. So look at what you uh, got in terms of who bought your shelter. David Foster, uh, yes, right? A, a private local, right. foundation, mm-hmm. Foster Family Foundation, mm-hmm. bought it, not the state. Right, right. Um, the renovations are being provided by the state. Well, it's COVID money, so it's federal mm-hmm, coming mm-hmm. through the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good work that you were able to get that. Yeah. Uh, so that's very good. But it's the first real time that you've really gotten any anything from the state in terms of taking care of the homeless. Right. That's true. That's true. Um, we are hoping to have a state contract mm-hmm. soon. Um, we've applied, but we haven't received any notice yet. And mm-hmm. I don't know that we will. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. In about 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. All right. 
So yeah, this, so that should be very interesting. But we'll go back and talk a little bit more about the health care, I think, and then that will go into the pending humanitarian crisis. Okay. Welcome back, everyone. This is Susan Johnson. I'm here with our very special guest this evening, the executive director of the No Free Shelter, Avery Lanhart. Uh, thank you so much again for being with us, and thank you so much for your good work because you are taking care of a lot of people who I think back in the day when I was working uh, for legal assistance to Medicare patients and at the Center for Medicare Advocacy, many of the people uh, would have been in a nursing facility or intermediate care facility, and now they're uh, forced out into the, into the street or into a homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true sometimes. And, um, and it's a really tough place to be because you're, you know, obviously not healthy, as healthy as you could be. And, and there you are now having to um, live in a shelter with a lot of other people and a lot of other issues. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not staffed like a nursing facility would be or intermediate care facility would be staffed. I mean, those are the kinds of places where uh, you know, you have some nursing help and some uh, nurses' aides, uh, people maybe helping with uh, uh, physical therapy or uh, some other types of things. And that's just not what a homeless uh, shelter is set up for. No, and even simple things like uh, managing medications. Um, so we don't have staff that, that does that. Um, and, and so as a result, people have to manage their own medications, which is, um, which is sometimes challenging. Um, so it can be really hard for people. How do they even have a place to put their medications? Well, we give people lockers. So they, okay. have a, they do have a place where they can lock up their medications. And if there's a concern about that or if we maybe are out of lockers at the moment and somebody has just come in with medications, we will lock up medications for people um, just to keep them safe. And they can have access to them when they need them. So, um, yeah. yeah. So this goes to the social determinants that we're talking about in terms of uh, what creates the situation that causes the homelessness, and a lot of it is a medical medical need, uh, whether it's a behavioral health issues or whether it's uh, actual just uh, cardiac surgery and then too long in the hospital, losing the apartment, and then not having a place to live and ending up being discharged instead of to a nursing home, uh, to a homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. Um, behavioral health is a huge concern. Um, most of my population at the shelter um, have some diagnosis, one or another, and and frankly, people are experiencing trauma or, or PTSD because they've they've just been through a trauma. If they've become homeless, um, that's a that's a traumatic event in your life. It's it, it's not something that anybody is taking lightly, and so um, so we we have people who are struggling in many ways. Uh, and and behavioral health is a big problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. A PTSD, of course, is one of the things that uh, just to sidetrack for a minute to another population of women and children who become homeless, and that's a growing number of, of uh, people uh, becoming homeless in our society because of the failure of our social safety net here in Connecticut and uh, nationwide. But Connecticut was the second worst in the entire country uh, for the temporary assistance for needy families, where we we're only giving them. 44% of poverty and limiting them to 21 months in a lifetime. And so now we have expanded the access to TANF beginning in April of 2024 uh, to 36 months and increasing the uh, 
the amount of money from the, to the federal poverty line and also for people who are working, and most people in these circumstances are working, uh, as long as they can hang on to the job and, and take care of the child and be homeless, uh, this is a situation where we're going to have a little bit better opportunities for families uh, in this uh, circumstance. So it is a humanitarian crisis, and it's because we have shut down our social safety nets all over the country, and especially in Connecticut. Uh, I have to just say one more thing, that we used to have something called the Social Services uh, social services uh, general assistance program and the general assistance program would help people stay in their homes if they lost their job or became ill the, the social services uh, program would actually uh, help people stay there so they weren't pushed out onto the street and that ended under Governor Rowland when uh, Gannam was looking for uh, former mayor and now mayor of Bridgeport uh, uh, Joseph Gannam uh, wasn't getting the reimbursement he wanted for uh, the people in his district. And they had a lawsuit suing Roland for the money, and Roland said he didn't have to give it to Bridgeport. And then uh, uh, they just pretty much shut down the general assistance program so that it's now, or the state assisted general assistance program, it's now at $219 a month if you're in this situation. You have to be looking for a job or you have to be applying for disability, and then you can get the $219 a month. But it's a very, very uh, difficult situation, and it doesn't really help that much. Uh, no. <laughs> no, it, it really doesn't. Um, most people um, that I see are, um, have, are if they're getting um, Saga Cash, they're getting it because they've applied for Social Security Disability, and they're waiting, which is usually about a year wait to find out. And during that time, it turns out that they don't want you to work because then you're showing that you um, don't need disability. So so it's kind of odd that they say, well, you should just live on $219 a month while we decide if you actually have a disability. <laughs> That's it's a very stunning and strange way of operating to try and, 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 again, this is a cost shift, so we want to be clear that this is a shift from the state of Connecticut to the local communities, the communities that have the least ability to support are homeless are put in the situation of supporting the homeless. Uh, so it would be Hartford, Bridgeport, Waterbury, New Haven, Will Willimantic, uh, New London. All the urban areas are the places where the homeless shelters are. They're not in any of the suburban towns that I'm aware of. That's true. Um, and um, we are fortunate that we get support from the local um, towns around us that don't have homeless shelters because they recognize that sometimes we're taking um, people from their communities into our shelter. So that's very nice. No, it's very good. I was very pleased to see, for example, Mansfield made a donation. Yes. But then they said, what's Wyndham going to donate? And I'm there already. Well, we donate already $6 million to all the nonprofits because they don't pay tax here. <laughs> right. That's true. That's <laughs> and that's true. a $6 million bill that we have here in Wyndham. And it's the people care very much here. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure everybody's cared for. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we are already donating. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. And Town of Wyndham also supports us. So mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
So we're grateful for that always. Yeah, it's a very good community. It's a very caring community. It's a community that's really open uh, to everyone. And uh, and that I'm very, very proud and honored to be able to be the representative for a community like that. Uh, but I just want to make sure that we're clear about that Wyndham does do a lot for all the nonprofits here. <laughs> yes, I know they do. And I, I have to say that I chose to live here um, in part mm-hmm. because this is a community that t- that takes care of its people. Mm-hmm. And I and I love to see that. Mm-hmm. You know, they they really do. They do, and that's great. And I'm I'm so glad you're here because you're doing amazing work uh, with the No Free Shelter and helping all the people. Uh, and now I know that you have some other very interesting information kind of along the lines of what we're speaking of, and it's the pending humanitarian crisis and the homelessness in Connecticut. And as we started off the show saying, we're about 120,000 units short of housing, and we also have a very poor social safety net, although I have worked very hard to improve it for the women and children. I hope to also maybe help out with the State Assisted General Assistance Program. Mm-hmm. But tell us a little bit about um, the pending humanitarian crisis that we're facing with so I have yeah I have a little bit of data um, that that talks about our can and the can is is called it's called the can because it stands for coordinated access network and so the state is divided into seven regions Um, each one is called a can and we work together with the people in our region the agencies in our region that have anything to do with um, homeless response. And so um, it's actually a really, a really great way to go about um, uh, having a system that really works. And it's, it, um, in the end, uh, what this does, the CAN works together. These are all agencies that are independent from one another. Um, it, the Eastern CAN is almost the entire Eastern half of Connecticut. So it goes from Thompson all the way south to New London and Mystic. Um, and there's about 25 um, active participating agencies in the Eastern Can um, region. And we work together. We meet with one another. Um, I, I go to meetings with other Can providers almost every day of the week. Um, we have something going on with everybody, and it's great because this is all about getting people from homeless to uh, homelessness to housed. And so I work with housing providers. I work with mental health and um, uh, addiction services. I work with um, uh, community action agencies. We work with outreach. And because of this, we've, we've developed some really wonderful collaborations with other organizations. But homelessness is on the rise in Connecticut. And um, in the Eastern Can alone, there are um, right now 489 people who are homeless in Eastern Connecticut. Um, of these 489, 78, are unsh- 78 households are unsheltered. So that includes some families too. Um, 78 are unsheltered, which means they might be sleeping in an abandoned building or in a tent or in some place that's not meant for human habitation. Um, It could be a car. They could be sleeping in a car, that kind of thing. Um, For the first time in in our history of having a can, which has been many years now, um, there are uh, we have a waiting list for shelter beds for families. And in the past, it used to be that um, if we knew that there was an unsheltered family, that's a family is defined as any adult or two adults with minor children. So um, 
So if there's a family that is unsheltered, we've always found a way to accommodate them in some way, even just if it's just for a couple of nights um, until we can get them sh regular shelter beds. Um, we've always been able to do that. And at this point, we can't. We have, um, we have four families on the shelter wait list. And this is very, very concerning to know that there are families with children outside, um, either in a tent or in cars or something like that. It makes me so sad. It's very sad and it's very um, traumatizing to the little ones. And it creates a problem. We, we know we're faced with a mental health crisis uh, all throughout the country and in Connecticut as well. And part of the mental health crisis is not having a kind, the kind of social safety net that every other country that has any kind of uh, uh, wealth uh, provides to the people. They provide people a, a way to get their step up so that they can participate in the economy. It doesn't help anybody to have uh, to exclude people from the economy like we're doing right now. Uh, the only thing that we can do as a society is to really make sure we have people we can uh, have them participate. And the way we get them to participate is to first make sure they have stable housing, make sure they have enough money to feed the children and clothe the children, make sure the education system works well for all the children all over the state. And then uh, make sure uh, training is being provided to people who uh, can be trained and move into a, a, a type of a job that will help them pay the rent. And as we started off this conversation, uh, we know that $15 an hour does not pay for uh, a regular place to live. Uh, in the state of Connecticut, and it gets worse every every single, uh, probably every single month, uh, the price of a of a apartment goes up. Mm -hmm. But we know that we needed between twenty five and thirty dollars an hour for our people to be able to afford a decent uh, a place to live, pay the rent, and that sort of thing without a subsidy. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that we uh, realize. And we have to uh, be able to step up so that we can include everybody in the economy. That's true. Um, it's it, yeah. It's something that um, we really need to address um, because uh, there's a couple of things happening right now. One is um, length of shelter stay. So people who go into shelter, we try to get them out of shelter and into housing in 30 days. Right now, that's impossible because there just aren't there isn't enough housing stock, and and if we do find housing, it's usually not affordable. Um, so so we have a kind of a backlog of people. Um, our average um, uh, household in, in Eastern Can um, stays in the shelter now for 172 days, and we want that number to be 30. So we have a lot of work to do to get people out of shelter. But what that does is it also means that there's now not enough shelter beds. And so when there's, because they're all full and people are not moving out of the shelter. So that means that there are people who are more and more increasingly sleeping outside or in unsheltered conditions because um, more people are becoming homeless. And, and people are at greater risk for homelessness, even if they're right now stably housed. Um, it's, you know, that... I don't have the statistic, but how many people right now are one paycheck away from losing their housing? You know, just um, living uh, every every month trying to figure out which bills they can pay and which bills can can wait another month and that kind of thing. And what can they give up to be able to afford to stay in their housing? Um, it gets very, very challenging for people. 
It certainly does, and that is the kind of uh, difficulty that we see people faced with all the time in your job, and also uh, the Department of Social Services. We have so many more people uh, that are uh, looking for housing, looking for supportive services, and we uh, at the Department of Social Services, we have fewer people working there than we did back in 2000, yet we have, <laughs> we have uh, twice as many people who have Medicaid needs, may just qualify for Medicaid, or have uh, housing needs. Uh, and they, there are all kinds of programs and uh, that they could maybe qualify for. But to try and make sure that the systems work at the Department of Social Services, which are relatively new, the scanning systems, uh, all of these things are things that we're working on at the Capitol to try and make sure that uh, we have enough in the way of, of, of work and support to process claims that people are eligible for. And uh, it's something that, you know, it's quite a, quite a difficult situation because everywhere you go, uh, because we didn't create a good, uh, solid social safety net back in the day in the 90s, we're now paying for the fact that we didn't do that back in the 90s. We cut back, cut back, whether it was on the national level where we in the 80s had limit, limited the uh, Section 8 program, uh, the building of housing uh, by the Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development uh, and just go into the, uh, the subsidies under the Section 8 program, whether we cut out coverage for mental health services back in the 80s under the Medicaid program, uh, whether we uh, did all kinds of different things that cut back on services here in Connecticut. Again, I'll mention the State Assisted General Assistance Program, going from helping people pay their rent, pay utilities, uh, help them with food and, and medical care until they could get back on their feet and not have to lose the place that they were living. That all got cut back in the 1990s under the Roland administration. And so uh, people forget about all these different programs that we had. And uh, when you go to TANF, you go back through the Aid to Families with Dependent Children where you had that money coming in until you actually were getting onto your feet and employed so that the little ones didn't have to live in a homeless shelter. The little ones weren't threatened with living in the car back in those days. You didn't have those kinds of problems before uh, we changed to the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, before we got rid of the State Assisted General Assistance Program to the point where we're only giving $219 a month to people applying for disability. And then, and then it takes forever to get on disability most of the time, so they're stuck. Yes, I agree. And the social safety net is a big issue. Um, one of the programs that I'd like to develop at the um, at the No Freeze is a is a homeless prevention program where we can be working with landlords and tenants on um, preventing evictions and helping people not be evicted. Um, because another problem is, of course, is if you have an eviction on your record, um, it's very hard to um, convince a landlord to rent to you again. Um, in this in this day and age, it used to be that um, that when there was plenty of housing available, um, landlords would be willing to look the other way or, or not or, or give people another chance. But mm -hmm. now, um, if there's any kind of criminal history, or if there's any kind of um, 
any kind of mark on somebody's record, it's very hard to convince a landlord. So, so I am hoping to you know to create a program at the No Freeze where we can um, we can prevent evictions and and you know save people from becoming homeless. And I I, I have a lot of ideas around how that's going to work. I'm just waiting until we make this transition, at least the first part of the transition, before I can start something new. <laughs> Well, I know you're a very busy, busy person, <laughs> and, and this transition is going to take a lot of work from you and the people who work with you uh, to make sure that everything is going to go as you planned, and uh, it's going to be a very good thing for people who are living in these very, very extremely difficult situations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope that we've really made it clear that so many people who are in this circumstance are uh, suffering with some type of health issue. And that those kinds of health issues are problematic. And I guess there's also a difference in how the state of Connecticut operates its SNAP benefit in terms of how uh, food resources are uh, obtainable by uh, people who are in homeless situations. It's really interesting. Some um, People kind of get different um, amounts uh, in their SNAP benefits um, depending on whether they have a house, uh, an apartment to live in. They might get their benefits cut because they're homeless. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was I read about um, when when um, Texas got hit with that terrible hurricane a few years ago, um, and many people had had to go live in hotels, and they were SNAP uh, recipients. Um, they were able to tailor their their benefits so that they could then buy restaurant meals because. Um, they were living in hotels and had no cooking facilities. So SNAP was able to just, just for this very specific population, it wasn't even a statewide thing, it was just for the people who were affected um, by the hurricane that they that they could change their benefits to allow them to, for instance, get some get some dinner at McDonald's or get restaurant meals and things like that. And it makes me wonder why that can't happen for the homeless population because um, SNAP benefits pay for um, food that needs to be prepared and that doesn't pay for prepared food. Um, you can buy at Stop and Shop, you can buy all of the parts of making a sandwich, but you can't buy a sandwich that's already been made. And, and for somebody who's experiencing homelessness, it would be so much easier if they could get something um, at, that's already made because they don't typically have a way to cook. <laughs> that's right, they don't. And that's an interesting, interesting observation by you. And I'm wondering <clears throat> if maybe the uh, emergency uh, thing, occurrence, so when, you, when you get a state of emergency, it might have had something to do with how, that, mm -hmm. how that happened. But yeah. it, <clears throat> it should be a state of emergency for anybody who's homeless. Exactly. <laughs> that's why that's it's... A, they're, a state of, they're in a state of emergency until they're housed exactly. and getting the services that they need. And I'm glad to hear that the chess program may be reinstated because I did mention that at my last meeting uh, with the Medical Assistance Policy Oversight Council. I hope it is because it's a great program and um, we had a number of people that were housed with that program and mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's so exciting when somebody goes goes into housing. We just mm -hmm. love that. Well, it would really be good for you to send me a note about that because I'd okay. love to hear some more and I'd like to sure. be able to send that off to the 
uh, commissioner and also the group that I'm working with, uh, Eastern Regional Council of State Governments, and we're working on different issues to try and figure out way to, to, ways to get additional housing for people uh, that may be uh, thought of in uh, terms of, um, you know, not obtainable, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, for all a variety of reasons, which I won't go into at this point. But anyway, I, any last words? Um, I would just want to thank our community for all of the support that they show um, to the No Freeze Project. Uh, we we could not do the work that we do without um, the donations and the support and um, and all that you've done. And and also, I just want to thank the town too, who's been um, really wonderful to us ever since uh, we moved to that location. It's been very nice to have the support of the town. I also just want to say this. We really need toilet paper. <laughs> if anybody, if anybody has an extra roll of toilet paper, you could drop it off. That would be great. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, okay, I'm a, that's a good last word. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Avery Linhart, the executive director for our No Free Shelter here in Wyndham. Thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you for all the good work you do to help the people. Thank you.